Well, as I begin this morning, let me ask you two questions, two questions. First question is this, do you think it is important to know what Scripture teaches about the end of time? By that, I mean things like what happens to the, or what happens when Jesus returns, what happens to the living and the dead, judgment, resurrection, and so forth. Do you think that's important? I think most Christians would say yes, they want to know about these things, it's One of the most important pressing questions of all. What happens at the end of time? So that leads to my second question. Do you know what happens at the end of time? Do you know what happens when Jesus returns? Do you know what happens to the living and the dead? Judgment, resurrection, and so forth. Do you have a rough idea, a rough order of the events of Jesus' return. For example, when exactly are we resurrected? Does it happen when a person dies, or do we have to wait until Jesus returns? What if you are alive when Jesus returns? How are you resurrected if you're already still alive? Does the resurrection occur all at once, or is it one person at a time? That might be hard for you guys who don't like to wait. Long line, right? Are there events that must happen before Jesus returns, or could He return at any time? I think we should know these things, church. If we go on a vacation, most of us take a lot of time to plan it out so that we know what lies ahead, right? We figure out where we're going to stay. What does the place offer? Does it have a good continental breakfast? That's always like something I want to know. How many nights? How much does it cost? What are the area attractions? We figure out those things when we go on a vacation, don't we? How much more should we want to know about the end of time that ushers us into eternity that lasts a whole lot longer than a week And will it far exceed anything on this earth? Even Disney World. Friends, I believe the events of the end of time, they are well laid out in Scripture. It's not a hopeless mess, as some people think. So let us know them well. And then as Adam was saying, let us be excited about them and let it impact our daily lives. Amen? So as we continue our series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, we come to one of the clearest teachings about the return of Jesus. It's not a comprehensive description because there is no comprehensive description in one single passage, but it does give us the main outline, especially when you combine this passage with the next passage that we'll be coming to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and In 2 Thessalonians, Paul will pick up and bring up a further discussion. So if you will just simply learn these three passages, you will know the key events of the end of time. I'm not saying you will know everything, but you will know the key events of the end of time. Does that sound good? So let's do it. We'll invite you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 987. 
there are going to be three parts to our passage before us. The assurance of our hope, the reasons for our hope, and the comfort of our hope. So page 987. Okay. So the first part is the assurance of our hope. The assurance of our hope. Let's read verse 13. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, who do not, try that again, that you may not grieve as others who do have no, I must have copied and pasted that wrong in my notes here because I know that's not what it says. Okay. (laughs) About those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There we go. So after Paul's exhortation to start chapter 4 about pleasing God, now he moves to his next subject matter. In fact, that phrase, we do not want you to be uninformed, Paul uses that same phrase in some of his other letters to indicate that he is changing topics, right? And he also says that he's sharing information, sharing information that he did not share with them because his time was cut short, If you remember, Paul had to leave Thessalonica because he was forced to by the town officials. So months later, Paul sent Timothy to go and check on the Thessalonian church and to see how they were doing. Well, Timothy informed Paul that they were very concerned about those who had passed away before the return of Christ. It seems that they believed, they believed in the return of Christ, but they also somehow believed that if you passed away before Jesus' returned, then you missed out on the resurrection. So that would really you know, motivate you to stay alive, right? So they were very concerned. and you know, It had been a pretty short amount of time since Paul had left, but we need to remember that back in this day and age, people's life expectancies was much shorter than ours. I read sadly that 50% of children did not even make their 10th birthday back in the time period. So these Thessalonians saw some of their loved ones who knew the Lord pass away, and they were concerned about what might happen to them. And I imagine they might be concerned about themselves too. Well, what if I was to pass away before Jesus returns? Would I miss out on the resurrection? Would I miss out on everything? So they believed in the second coming, but they were concerned about deceased Christians who missed the resurrection. So Paul needed to share the details about, his, about the return of Jesus. What happens to people who die, Christians who die now, and what's going to happen when Jesus returns? So in essence, verses 14 to 17 is basically what Paul um, didn't get a chance to share with them when he was there the first time. So before looking at verses 14 to 17, though, I want to make a a couple of comments of what Paul says when he says that Christians who died were asleep. Did you see that? They're asleep. What does that mean? Well, some people believe in what is called soul sleep. You ever heard of that before? S-O-U-L, soul sleep. They would believe that when the 
Christian dies, their body perishes, but, and their soul sleeps. And the soul sleeps until Jesus returns and raises them from the dead. And then the soul awakens. That view has been a small minority within Christian groups, but there are various individuals and groups that have held that. I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches, though. I think what Paul is using here is is a euphemism. A euphemism is a gentler, kindler way of saying the same thing, right? And so I think he's saying in a kinder way simply that these people had died. We do the same thing today when we say so-and-so passed away. It's just a gentler way of saying someone had died. And so to say a Christian sleeps is simply to say that they died. But that is only speaking of their body. It is not speaking of their soul. I think their soul goes to be with the Lord once death happens. Here are a few texts. Luke 23, 43. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, quote, Truly I say to you, today, right? Today. I mean, that's pretty clear. You will be with me in paradise. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul has this internal debate whether it is better to serve the Lord, see fruitful things happening, or to die and be with Christ. His preference was to be with Christ. Well, that means it makes little sense to say he would rather be with Christ if that means to sleep, right? Because he viewed living as a positive thing. He wanted to live and serve the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, 8, one last passage. Paul writes, We know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Did you see that? It's either or. Either you are at home in the body, or you are away and at home with the Lord. It's one or the other. If you're interested, some other texts, you want to look them up. Luke 16, 19 to 31, Acts 7, 55 to 60, Revelation, Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. Speak of the fact that when a Christian dies, there is no soul sleep. The soul goes right to the presence of the Lord. Amen. I like that. I like this too. This is a, a great little... Uh, quote from John Owen. He was a great British theologian. And when he was on his deathbed, he had his secretary write to a friend, quote, I am still in the land of the living. And then he said, stop. Change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. Total paradigm shift, right? So going back to the Thessalonians, Paul wants the church to be informed about those who had fallen asleep, those who had died and were now with the Lord. Paul wrote to them because he didn't want them to grieve as those without hope. Now, just to clarify, Paul's not dismissing grief, okay? He's not saying you shouldn't grieve when someone dies. Grief is the natural reaction, to loss, and death is the greatest loss of all. And so you see Jesus, when Lazarus, his friend, dies, 
he knows he's just about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet he still weeps, doesn't he? Paul says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. In fact, Paul himself in Acts 20, when he says goodbye to the Ephesian leaders there, he knows he's never going to see them again. He weeps just knowing that he's not going to see them again. So surely he would have wept at the death of Christian loved ones and friends. So Paul is not dismissing grief. Everybody got that? But what he is getting at is that we should not grieve as those without hope. We shouldn't grieve as if we have no hope. And this was important because in the Roman Empire that he was surrounded by, there was no real hope in the afterlife. You see, the pagan religions were fixated pretty much on just helping you muddle through life. They weren't even really concerned about the afterlife. There were some Greek philosophers who spoke about the, the, the soul going on afterward, existing after death. Some of the mystery religions promised an afterlife. But as one writer says, quote, these ideas were not well-defined or widely adopted at a popular level so that Paul's assertion about the hopelessness of those outside the faith is accurate. The vast majority of people face death with a despair, with a sense of hopelessness, and you see it in some of the writings of the people at the time. For example, one Greek poet named Theocritus, wrote, he wrote, quote, Hopes are for the living. Without hope are the dead. The Greek philosopher Seneca wrote, Most men ebb and flow in wretchedness between the fear of death and the hardships of life. The Latin poet Catullus wrote, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, we must sleep a never-ending night. I think it's safe to say these guys were not working for Hallmark at the time, doing any cards. But that was pretty much the prevailing mindset of the people at the time. There was a deep sense of despair and hopelessness as people looked out and thought about death. In fact, one of the most popular inscriptions that was found on tombs, read, is found out all throughout the empire there, these words, I quote, I was not and I was. I am not, and I care not. Can you imagine that? That was just on people's tombs. But you know, in my view, it's 2,000 years later, and many people still live without a hope in the afterlife. Either they have no hope at all, or it is very vague and ill-defined. If you don't believe God exists... We die, and that's it, right? Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. There are Eastern religions that speak of an afterlife, but they also would deny a personal immortality of the soul because they actually deny human personhood. So it's hard to see how that imparts genuine hope since you don't exist in the first place. In our nation, there are a lot of people who believe they're going to heaven, but if you ask them why, they can't give a reason. And a lot of people simply have no idea. And I think back to my life before becoming a Christian. I remember looking at death with a great sense of fear. I didn't want to die when I was young. 
And even more importantly, I was afraid of what would happen to me. I remember thinking, man, I just, I, what if I died when I would sleep? What would happen to me? It scared me. I'd have no control, and I, would, I had no idea what would happen to me. In fact, I remember someone asking me one time, what would happen to you if you were to die? And I remember saying to that person, I would probably go to hell. So I understand this sense of hopelessness. But friends, Christ changed everything. And that is why we believe in the resurrection and why the resurrection absolutely took the Roman Empire by storm because all these hopeless people were walking around and then all of a sudden they heard good news about the fact that there's a resurrection. So friends, both Christians and non-Christians, we grieve, don't we? over death, but Christians part ways at that point. We do not grieve as those without hope, but we have an assurance of our hope. So everybody see that first point there? The assurance of our hope. That leads to the question, though, why? Why should we have an assurance of our hope? Paul gives the reasons for our hope. Friends, our hope is not mere wishful thinking. But it's based on historical facts and reliable promises. And Paul mentions two reasons. First, deceased Christians will return with Jesus. Remember again the context. The Thessalonians, they were worried. What happens to those who had died? Is that it? Paul says here, they're going to come back with Jesus. So let's read verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Christians, friends, that's what we speak about. Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. His death cleanses us so that we can be made right with a righteous judge and a, and a holy God. And then Jesus rose again so that we can have victory over death. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Death has been defeated. Grave, the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. So the, the, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our hope. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. It's not just wishful thinking. We're intricately connected to Jesus. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a tremendous passage that really powerfully reinforces this truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 to 13. Listen to Paul's words here. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So you guys get the, the train of thought there? It's very simple but profound. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we have no hope. Right? We have no hope. But Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruit. What does that mean? Well, when they planted their crops, right, and they prepared to harvest, the first fruit was the product of the crop. It came first. The rest of the harvest would come after. You see that? So it wasn't ready yet, but that first fruit guaranteed the remainder of the harvest. Jesus is the first fruit. His resurrection came first, and it guarantees our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4.14 declares, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we are locked together with Christ. We are intricately connected. He was raised from the dead. Therefore, when Jesus returns, we who are asleep, we who have died and our spirits are now with the Lord, we will come with him. He will bring us back. So the Thessalonians had nothing to worry about. They were not going to be left out if you happen to die before Jesus comes. We are connected with Christ who rose from the dead. Everybody see that? So now in verses 15 to 16, Paul gives a second reason for our hope. Deceased Christians will be resurrected first. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So first Paul mentions this word from the Lord Jesus, something he said, Perhaps Jesus had revealed something to Paul directly. We know that he had some various revelations to him by Jesus. But I think what he's probably talking about here is the teaching that Jesus gave about the end of time that is found in Matthew 24 and those parallels, Luke 21, Mark 13. That is what's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and he taught about the end of time. So Paul, he doesn't actually recite what Jesus teaches until verse 16. He summarizes what Jesus taught, and he applies it to the Thessalonians. Again, what he says, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, living Christians, get this, will not receive resurrection bodies before deceased Christians. The Thessalonians didn't need to be afraid that they would miss out, that they would be left out. So in verse 16, then Paul shares the specific teaching of Jesus about his return. He says, For the Lord himself will will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So follow this. There's a lot here in one verse. At the start, he says, Jesus himself will descend from heaven. Notice that Jesus, though he will come with angels, the angels don't come by themselves, right? 
In other words, they're not his intermediaries, that he sends them out. Jesus comes himself, right? He comes himself, and he issues this cry of command. In other words, he says something that sets it all into motion. And that leads to the second step, the voice of an archangel. Well, an archangel was a high-ranking angel. You say, well, there was there a specific angel that's being spoken of? I think he's speaking of the archangel Michael, because he was the only archangel that's ever named in Scripture. He found, he's found in Jude chapter 9, specifically named Mark, Michael the archangel. So he is a high-ranking angel, perhaps the highest-ranking angel. He appears in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. He's called the great prince. Now, we know from Matthew 24 that a lot of angels are going to be coming when Jesus returns. But here we read about Michael the archangel. He commands Michael, and then Michael does something. What does he do? The sound of the trumpet of God. Michael sounds the trumpet. You say, well, what for? Well, in the Old Testament, the trumpet was used to indicate the presence of God. God was here. Now, we know in a sense God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But there's a sense of his manifest presence that was now going to take place. For example, you read in in Exodus 19, when God met the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai to establish his covenant with them and to uh, deliver the Ten Commandments, when all that happened, a trumpet sounded to indicate that God was with them there on the mountain. So a trumpet indicates the presence of God. Followed away in your mind, a trumpet is also used in Scripture to indicate war. That will come up in two weeks. Then, as it says, when Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. You guys have been paying attention, right? So who are the dead in Christ? These are the deceased Christians. People have passed away before Jesus comes back. When they, Jesus is going to bring them back and give them resurrection bodies. So this was great news for these Thessalonians. So not only are deceased Christians not left out, but they're going to receive their resurrection bodies first. First, first in line. Why why do they receive their resurrection bodies first? Some have joked it's because the dead are six feet behind everybody else, and so God is summoning them first because they need a head start. It's a good joke, but it's actually not really accurate based on what we've been saying. The dead are coming with Christ from heaven. They're going to receive their resurrection bodies first. And this isn't an Easter Sunday message, but, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but boy, isn't it nice just to think about those resurrection bodies? <laughs> What'd you say? Your body's a mess. <laughs> bodies that never grow old, never get sick, and never die. We'll never, we, we'll, we'll never sin anymore. And this hit me the other day when our Friday prayer meeting, just the fact that we'll be able to worship God the way we should worship Him. You know, sometimes you worship God and you're like, amen, amen, but you kind of like tucker out, you know, just because we're just so limited in our capacities. But to have a capacity to just praise God all day long, and you would just love every moment of it. 
I can't wait for that. Scripture also hints of possessing powers that perhaps we don't have here in this world. Think about how Jesus just would vanish, right? He just would leave the empty tomb or he would walk through doors. He would just disappear. He never did that before he had his resurrection body. Kind of fun to think about those things. Can't wait. So that is what the the dead in Christ, deceased Christians, that's what they have to look forward to. They will come with Christ, and then they will be raised from the dead. What about those who are living? What happens to them? Well, in verse 17, Paul teaches, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we always will be with the Lord. So Christians are caught up. Living Christians, I should say, are caught up in the air to meet the Lord. Now, there are two main ways to interpret this passage. Some interpret it to mean that the church is secretly raptured out of the world. Everyone else is left behind. Hence the popular novels that were written a number of years ago. Then Jesus will return seven years later. The second view interprets this passage as simply describing the second coming. In other words, there is no separate secret rapture. There is just the second coming. Which view is right? That's why you come back next week (laughs) to find out. Very important discussion. Very important discussion that I don't want to answer in two minutes. So please join us next week. Now, before closing, just wanted to ask the question, how does this passage strike you? How does this passage strike you? If you are a Christian, I hope that it gives you a sense of clarity about what happens after death. When a person who knows the Lord dies... Their spirit does not sleep, okay? But they go to be with the Lord. And when Jesus returns, our spirits return with him because we're intricately connected with him, right? And we are resurrected. We're not resurrected once we die. We are resurrected when Jesus returns. And the assurance, once again, is based on Jesus. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection, So we don't have to fear death. And we don't have to fear the death of Christian loved ones. Somehow we'll never see them again. We will see them again when we die. And they too will receive resurrection bodies. This morning I was thinking about Lori Fusco, who passed away last year. No accident there. I was thinking about how when I saw her about a week or so, maybe about 10 days before she passed away, she really did, she said, I don't want you to see me because cancer had done such a number on her. I said, Lori, I don't mind seeing you. That's fine. But this, the Spirit of the Lord was powerful in her eyes. didn't matter what her body looked like. But that's not what matters. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm focused on at all. Because I know when I see Lori, it will either be in the glories of heaven as a spirit or in when Jesus returns and we are resurrected. 
And I know Lori won't look like what she looked like 10 days before her passing, and I won't look like what I look like now. She and I will be different, and all who know Christ will be different. And so when someone passes away who, who knows the Lord, yes, our hearts are broken. Yes, we grieve because we love them, but yet we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And if you're not a Christian... I encourage you to follow Jesus today. He can change how you view death to change you from, like my life, from a sense of fear and dread to an assurance of hope. It's not some psychological trick that you conjure this stuff up. I remember after trusting Jesus, driving home from, from D.C., to Virginia and going on the beltway and you get on the beltway around there you never know if you're going to get off of that thing but driving home and just having a peace that if something were to happen to me I was okay I didn't conjure that up the Holy Spirit gave me that assurance so how do you follow Jesus you might ask very simply he tells us we need to repent we need to turn from our sin. We need to do a spiritual U-turn. Stop living your way where you were on your throne and say, God, I want you on the throne of my heart. And then we believe. We believe what? We believe Jesus is God in human flesh who died on the cross and rose from the dead. We repent and then we believe. And if you believe and you repent, then you are following Jesus. That is how you become a Christian. And once you are a Christian, let me put one more thought out there. Jesus wants you to declare your allegiance to him by being baptized. Baptism does not make you a Christian. Very clear about that. But if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to be willing to say, he is my Lord. He is my Savior. We need to be ready to tell the church and to tell the world that I am a follower of Christ so that when He does return, He knows that we are indeed His. In Mark chapter 8, verses 38, and follow, or verse 38, He says these words. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When you stand in the waters of baptism, it doesn't make you a Christian. But what it is is saying, church, the world, I am not ashamed of Jesus. He is my Father. He is my Lord and Savior. I am going to follow him. So let me just encourage you, respond to whatever God is putting on your heart here this morning to repent and to believe in Jesus for the first time, to truly become a Christian. And perhaps if you've already made that decision, but you've never followed him into the waters of baptism, to do that today and say, yes, I am telling the world I am a follower of Christ and I am prepared for his return. Amen? Amen. Let us have a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we thank you that your word teaches us not only how to live, 
but how to face death. Thank you that you give us reasons for having hope in the face of death. And it's not wishful thinking, but it's based on the empty tomb of Jesus. Thank you that you have also revealed these things to us, that we might know what lies ahead in the future. Lord, we don't have the foggiest idea of what lies in the future. We can't even predict who will win an NCAA basketball game. How on earth can we know what lies 10 years, 50 years, hundreds of years down the road? We don't know, but you have told us what lies in the future and so that we can have an assurance of these things. God, I pray that you would speak to hearts and minds today. I pray you would give peace and assurance for believers who know you, that they can think about their own death one day and have an assurance that because Jesus was raised, they too will be raised. And perhaps for someone here today who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord, God, help them to see that and help them to follow through with a commitment to truly follow you to repent and to believe in Jesus. May you work that work in their heart today. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for this wonderful time looking at your word. We pray that we would now be doers of your word. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.